what would you do if you couldn't fail? I was vulnerable in the sense of I was just who I was. In my journey as an entrepreneur, I've really found who I am as a human. The, the cold exposure, it conditions the inside of our body to literally adapt. Finding the grace and the humor. The mycelium, which you can think of as the root system. Whatever happens in the gut happens in the brain, and whatever happens in the brain happens in the gut. Absolutely had mentors, absolutely 100% had coaches. 90 plus percent of the decisions that we make today actually stem from fear. Work at a gratitude practice. What the hell am I doing? Can I really do this? Is this really worth it? Chaga is actually the most antioxidant rich food on the planet. Allow ourselves to have imperfection. When people are on the path, they shine. For me, it's it's really inspiring people to step out. And you don't have to step all the way out. What's your purpose? Nothing starts without a plan, nothing ever goes to plan. We so often convert things into flaws as opposed to strengths. Entrepreneurship, I truly believe to anybody on this call is grit. I'm so thrilled that this content is getting out there, that you guys are, are promoting bold and vulnerable aspirations for people because I hope that we can and all live that every day. Hey, this is Jessica and Svetlana, and you're listening to the Bold and Vulnerable Podcast, where we aim to inspire others to live authentically through sharing the bold and vulnerable stories of peak performers across a variety of industries. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. I've been drinking Four Sigmatic products for three years, and I'm thrilled that the company has been expanding. My go-to products are the Lion's Mane Coffee, Reishi, Cordyceps, and Chaga Elixirs, and the 10 Mushroom Blend that I add to my post-workout plant protein smoothies. They also just launched a new protein powder of their own that I am pumped to try. Learn while you shop by heading to foursigmatic.com backslash bold and vulnerable or typing your discount code at checkout, all caps, bold and vulnerable. Chris Hadnagy is a professional social engineer, author of four books, and keynote speaker. He's the CEO of Social Engineer LLC, a company who serves some of the globe's largest organizations. Additionally, Chris provides free resources, including the world's first social engineering framework via socialengineer.org. And he also heads the Innocent Lives Foundation, a nonprofit that unmasks anonymous child predators. So welcome, Chris, to the show. And that was just a brief bio. I'm sure everyone's highly confused as to what you do. So I wanted to maybe hear in your own words, what is a social engineer and how did you get started along this path? And I want to give you the floor to maybe explain a little bit more about kind of who you are and, and what, what you sure. have been Thanks doing. Thanks for having me on too. I'm excited to be here. So uh, social engineering, I guess if I had to back way up, I would define it as any act that influences a person to take an action that may or may not be in their best interest. That's a clinical definition that we came up with for trying to understand um, how it is that we make decisions, humans make decisions, and then analyzing how that process gets altered by malicious hackers or people who want to scam you or steal your money or steal your credentials or other things like that. Uh, we, we analyze those processes, we study how it works, and then we test companies um, for vulnerability to those things and then help them fix the problem. Probably the best way to describe it. Thanks for that brief synopsis. So essentially, it's this mix of knowing the user and human hacking. And you recently gave a TED Talk that I got a chance to watch, and uh, you did a wonderful job. You were describing 
the positive sides of social engineering and how our brain chemistry affects our decision making. And I wanted to dive into and dissect why did you feel the need to create this talk and get this message out there? Sure. So I, I feel like when we talk about social engineering from a malicious side, so many times corporations, companies, they focus on this getting hacked and, and it always, you know, you see the guy in the hoodie in the basement with the one swinging light bulb. And we always think it's this scary person that, that hacks us and steals our money or our credit cards. Uh, and, and many times it's really the opposite. It's people who befriend you, who become uh, your pal, your buddy on the internet. Right now, one of the biggest scams going around is something called a romance scam. And, and it's really they, these, these horrible people target someone who just lost their mate uh, through death or divorce, and then they target them, getting them to date online, and then eventually there's requests for money uh, once, once the relationship is there. So to, to understand how to protect ourselves, I felt it was necessary to look at the good sides of how we make decisions. So in my, in my TED Talk, I talk about how my daughter got me to have a princess tea party and, and paint my nails and wear a pink scarf, something I would never, ever do on my own accord. But I did it with her. And it's easy to say, well, you know, that's just because she's your daughter and you love her. But there's so much more to it when you analyze it. The request comes in and I have to decide, do I want to do this or not? And while I'm thinking about this decision, there's a whole bunch of brain chemistry happening. I got oxytocin, I got dopamine, all these things are being released in, in my brain and it's altering the way that I'll make that decision. Very much so alteration that if you were to ask the same thing, I would make a very, a very different decision because the same brain chemicals wouldn't be there as they are with, with my daughter. So when we start to understand how neuroscience, how um, biological chemistry works in us making decisions, it's the first step in being able to protect ourselves. Because you may then be able to say to somebody, hey, next time you're online and, and you're feeling really good about this conversation with this guy or gal, and then all of a sudden a request comes in for something, step back and think for a second. Like Take that 30-second break before you make an emotional decision and analyze, is this the best course to take? Okay, wow. So you hit on many topics there that I'm sure we will continue to dissect, but how did you get into this field? What was that journey that brought you into this space? I'm curious. Yeah, that's a fascinating um, uh, topic for me because I started off uh, what we what we call as a penetration tester. So I get we got hired, the company I worked for, to actually hack into these organizations through computers. So not humans at all. And uh, I was working with this company doing that. We were writing exploits, which are little programs that find vulnerabilities in other software and then allow you to alter that software. Um, and we were doing a lot of training on these things. And through the, the course of my time working with them, uh, whenever we would get stuck somewhere and we needed to do something like phishing, like writing an email to get a password or something called vishing, that's with a V, uh, to, to get in to, to, to call them to get their passwords, I would be the guy who would try it. And I would just try crazy things. You know, I would, I'd read a book on, on something like nonverbals or on influence or on how to negotiate. And I would say, I'm going to try this on the phone. And it would work. And time after time, it was so successful. I said, you know what? I'm going to write a, a little course on this for other pen testers who want to be able to use these skills in their career. So I, I went to my, my boss at the time and said, hey, I want to I write this course. And he says, well, you got to write a framework first because there's literally nothing out there in the world on this topic that anyone is doing any training on. So you have to write a framework about how you would develop this training. And I said, okay, that's pretty smart. So I wrote the framework that took about 10 months. 
Um, I put it up on the internet uh, and and in a few months of being out there, I got a call from a publisher who asked me to write a book about that framework because it was the first time anyone had frameworked out what social engineering is from a security aspect and how it's used from hackers and things like that. So I wrote that book that was 2010. And when that came out, um, I quickly was getting calls about, hey, will you, will you consult us with this? Will you help us with this project? And that, that really formulated my business. So I started my business based on that. And then if I jump forward from there through the next 10 years, uh, what has been truly uh, amazing is to see how this has grown from something that people rarely did to where it's now a full-blown industry. You know, like we have, there's not just me doing it. There's so many people now that, that are, you know, quote unquote, social engineers that are doing this as a practice. But to watch my class that I teach, I have a five-day course that I developed. And if we go back, let's say three or four years, I would say the shift is, 50 to 60% of the students that come to these classes are not in my industry. They're teachers, psychologists, law enforcement. Uh, I had a Zumba instructor. I had so many different kinds of people that were coming to this class because they wanted to learn how to use these skills in everyday life, not, not for you know, hacking other people, but necessarily hacking themselves. And, and that, that has taken my career in a whole different path that I never thought it would be because now I'm teaching people how to use these things uh, for self-betterment and to also be more secure as opposed to use them as part of a, a pen test team. Wow, I'm taking all of that in. I love how you had this drive and passion to create this course that had never before been created. And perhaps this creative process goes into authoring books for you as well, because I know you've also uh, written and authored books since. What was that passionate and creative process like for you breaking down all of that information and all of that data and creating this course out of it in just two months? Ooh, wow. That is, that is a great question. So really the hard part of that was done when I did um, the framework. So I went to my, my library, my personal library, my bookshelves, and I literally pulled off every book that I read for my own education because I wasn't born with this skill, right? I wasn't born in just like a master hacker. I was, I, I learned this through the years. And whenever I read a book and, and I'm not one of those guys who just reads a book, like I underlined it, I put bookmarks in it, sticky notes. So I went to the books on my shelf that had all of these sticky notes in it and underlines. And I said, okay, I use this. And that became a section. And then I used this and that became a section. Then I used it and I kept doing that with a different, different topics and that helped me develop my framework. So then when it came time to write the course, um, one of the things that, uh, that really affected me for the company I worked with at the time was they did everything really, really um, proactive and hands-on. You didn't just hear lectures, you actually tried something. So you got a lecture, but then you went and you actually had to do it. And I said, okay, how do I do this with social engineering? Because it's not a computer, it's, it's humans. So we it took me a couple of years, but we developed a course that now um, helps people not only hear these things, learn about them, but then they go out and they get to practice them. And, and it, it's, it's been life-altering for so many people, myself included, uh, to be able to not just hear about, hey, here's how influence works, here's how rapport works, but now I want you to go try this principle here tonight on somebody and, and then to see it in action really solidifies those principles. Yes. Practicing principles like these, even for 
in my experience, networking purposes for sales, um, you know, applying it to people who might be listening, like you mentioned, creating rapport is sometimes a learned skill for people and practicing these principles can be key to creating that network or creating that rapport with somebody. So let's dive deeper. Can you tell us a little more about the human psyche and how using these skill sets and these principles that you've been mentioning can help you understand more of the positive side of how we make decisions and how you can confront those? Sure. So um, maybe two areas that I really focus on when it comes to that. First is is nonverbals. So everything from uh, facial expressions to our body language. Uh, there, there's multiple researchers and scientists that have researched this topic that talk about two different things. One is normally our facial expressions or our body language are a display of an emotion. So if, we, if, if, if I'm irritated, then my face will maybe look angry. My body will be more tense and closed off. Um, and if I'm happy, then my, my face will be more open and so would my body language. Um, and, and the reverse of that is the second part, which is true, is that if I actually create the body language, I can create the emotion. So um, Amy Cuddy did a wonderful research that was discredited by some other researchers, then she proved it over and over again, and now it's exonerated. It's wonderful. Um, She she wrote the the book and did the TED Talk on fake it till you make it, and all about like taking power poses, and that releases certain chemicals in our body that makes us feel more confident, even if we're not feeling confident. Um, In addition, Uh, Paul Ekman did some research that talks about the expressions on our face can actually alter your emotions. So if you and I are in person and we're talking and I'm looking angry or afraid and I'm supposed to be having a chat with you, you may look at me and like, wow, why why does he look so off today? Like, What's wrong with him? But if I'm looking happy, you'll feel happy. You won't feel tense. Uh, my, My emotional content can affect your emotional content. It's something called mirror neurons. So nonverbals to me are are a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. Um, and then the second piece is, is something that uh, a researcher named Daniel Dr. Goldman did, uh, which is all about amygdala hijacking. So the amygdala is the piece of our brain that processes all the external stimuli from, from our five senses, and it triggers biological or physiological response. So you know, it, it, you, it has the, the fight or flight response is what happens with the amygdala. And the fascinating part of that research is how when the amygdala is hijacked, it actually hijacks our logic centers and creates a scenario where we start making decisions based purely on emotion and not on logic. So understanding these two parts of how we work uh, really can affect someone in so many areas. So first from the security side, uh, knowing that when we feel emotionally triggered, we're going to make worse decisions. Well, hackers and scammers play on that all the time. But also, that can help us with our, with our personal relationships, with our kids, our spouse, our significant others, our employees, our employers, knowing that being overtired or emotionally triggered is going to affect the way that we make decisions could help us if we have that self-realization to, to not react poorly in, in emotional circumstances. So there's just so many benefits to understanding these things that can help us in everyday life. Yeah, there's that sweet spot for our brains where the logic and instinct meets the emotional side. And I have been in sales throughout most of my career. Even now as a business owner, I am still in sales. But working in technology and in leadership, we absolutely 
use nonverbals to communicate and and I have used nonverbals to communicate with teammates and and clients and a few things you mentioned are mirroring and power poses before key talks or, or key sales. It's so powerful to be able to have those tools in your toolbox. And Svetlana, I'm sure that you've experienced similar things as well. Well, it's a big thing that you learn in um, NLP training. Chris, I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with NLP, um, but it's a big one in NLP and hypnotherapy, mirroring rapport. It's one of the, it's, it's one of the, the first things that you learn about and in sales, of course, cause I've been in sales as well. And, um, rapport is always the biggest thing. It's never about, uh, what you're selling, um, or what you're saying. It's, it's, it's more about your, your body language and how you're behaving and how are you mirroring the person? And do you have that connection? And sometimes it's instant. Sometimes you have to, you have to build it, but really you can always, um, when, when a person is resistant, um, they're really just out of rapport with you. I, I agree a hundred percent. And so, Chris, that's so a, important. A question also, I was just curious, would you say you're like a human lie detect? Like you can, can you, <laughs> are you a human lie detector? Like, can you look at a person and just be able to tell just by looking at them and what they're saying, um, whether they're lying or not? You know, here, here's a fascinating uh, tidbit. And I love when I get asked that question. There is no lying nonverbal expression that's universal. So the way to, to tell truth from, from lie is when you see incongruent body language with verbal uh, output and then being, having the freedom to ask questions. So, for example, if, I, you, know, if you and I were talking and, and it would say, you know, how did you enjoy this, this podcast? Did I do okay? And you were to shrug one shoulder and then go, yeah, yeah, you did great. Well, that body language is incongruent with your words. A, a single shoulder shrug says you're really not sure about, about me or about if I did good or about the words you're about to say. So if I saw that, I wouldn't go, hey, you're a liar. You just, said, you just said something different with your body. That would be inappropriate. So I may ask another question. Well, so what do you think I could have done to do better? You know, I appreciate the compliment. What could I have done to do better? And now I'll watch for you know, another piece of body language to see if there's more congruency or incongruency, you know, and if you do something like, let's say, shake your head no, and then say, well, let me think on that. You may be saying, there's nothing I could have done to fix this mess, you know, <laughs> but if you, if you get a smile on your face and you nod with a yes, and then you say, well, I have a couple thoughts. Let me send them to you an email. I know that I'm getting an honest response at that point. So the detection of, of uh, falsehood uh, versus versus lies is really about incongruency, the change from comfort to discomfort, and the ability to ask questions because there's no just one thing that indicates the deception. That's an interesting. That's a very very interesting point that you bring up because I I I've, I've seen the incongruency in people. Um, I don't know if this is something that you talk about um, as well, but even in a photo. Um, I can tell an incongruency in a person's body language just by their posture, the way that they're standing and um, the the words that they type in the photo. And I'm not sure if that's my perception of reality, but I get a very strong idea of like, well, your body language doesn't match what you're saying in this post, for example. And, and that's all... That's all very important, right? I mean, especially yeah. with public speaking, if someone is standing before you and, and I, I've been known to do this, I get nervous before a speech and one of the um, nervous tics is called the manipulator, 
where maybe you wring your hands together or you play with a ring or you play with a button. And if you're standing on stage, you know, now for me, I'll try to stand tall, chest out, chin up, you know, not so up that you look arrogant, but that you're exuding confidence, you know, more broader uh, body language. But now here's my hands and they're not steepled. I'm rubbing my fingers together, I'm playing with my ring on my finger. And all of those indicates to people who are in the know who can see that, that I'm really not as confident as my body language is saying, because my manipulative hand gestures are showing that I'm actually nervous. So it was, um, it's interesting to watch those things. And again, it doesn't mean I'm lying. I may be trying to stand confident to get myself in that mental position. So that way I can do a better job uh, for, for this speech. So it, it's, you know, again, the, the, that line that tells you if someone's being deceptive is when you have that ability to ask questions and prove if it's, you know, if it's nature or if it's deception that play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the the hand gesture, the the you know grabbing on the your thumbs and holding your hands, that's actually something that we learned. My my mentor uh, sent me to their their sales training, their public speaking slash sales training, and that was a big one. You know, we just it's like this natural thing we do when we get nervous. We want to clasp our hands together, uh, and it it feels unnatural to put take your hands apart and hold them at your side, but you actually you come off way more confident um, and you could just see it even in a, in a video, but yeah, definitely. It doesn't mean that you're lying at, at all. I think that you're, you're absolutely, you, you hit the, the nail right on it. It's, you, it's all about asking questions and, and figuring it out from there. I agree. Let's shift gears to more personal and vulnerable questions. And I want to touch on adversity for you. You recently gave a speech on the five lessons you learned from dynamic risk-taking over your career thus far. It was an inspiring talk that I'm going to link in the show notes for the listeners because it was something that I truly took a lot away from. But let's dive into these five lessons. And in doing this, perhaps you can share a time in your career that you went through adversity and what that taught you. Wow, that is there is a lot there. How long do we have? No. <laughs> but um, what what lesson would you like to talk about in the risk taking, or do you just want me to kind of talk about about them? Yeah. Why don't you pick the most vulnerable moments for you that brought you into your deepest points of adversity, and how you pulled yourself or got pulled out of that, and what did it teach you? Yeah, can I give you two? Because I can give you a personal one and maybe a business yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. So my 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 um my personal one, you know, was adversity. You know, we're talking about like real big ad- adversity in life. Is uh, I had just started working for a company um, when I found out that my wife was pregnant, and when she got pregnant, she said, um, "This is our second child." She said, "I I." I worked through the whole time that our son was, was growing up and I'd love to not work anymore. This was, you know, she wanted to, to stay at home and be with Amaya and to, to be with her more uh, full time than she was with Colin. So she said, you know, can't you think we can swing it? You think we can do it? Uh, you think that's possible that you can, you know, either change a job or find a job that, that takes both of our salaries. So I don't have to work anymore. And I was like, well, this has to happen, right? She's, I mean, she's worked for her whole marriage. 
She's never asked for anything like this. I got to make this happen. You know, this is something I have to do. And I went out searching for a job, um, had something really stable. The month my daughter was born, I got laid off. And that was, I got to say, as far as adversity goes, that may be the largest uh, adversity that I went through on a personal level. Um, it was, it was really, it was scary, scary times, you know, and I think um, male ego got in the way of some things where I was, you know, reluctant to take help in any form at first. And then I would say that probably the thing that helped me the most um, was, uh, you know, my family, primarily my wife being really, really smart and uh, really, really resourceful. And then secondarily, just a good group of friends that can sit you down and help you start to critically think. And that's the lesson that I got from that adversity for me is that when we're overly emotional and we allow emotions to dictate our next path, we stop critically thinking. And uh, critical thought to me is not maybe necessarily the academia version of that where, you know, you question everything. Um, critical thinking for me is the ability to look at where you need to be in the future and then work backwards. And oftentimes when we're emotionally hijacked, that seems like an impossible task because we're here right now in this moment. I have this massive rock of stress sitting on top of my chest and my only goal is to get it off. I need to get it off my chest and move forward. And that's the very opposite of what will help us solve that problem where um, we're sitting back critically thinking, I need to, what do I need to be? I need to have a job that supports my family and doesn't make my wife go back to work. That was my, 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 my job, my goal. So I need to work backwards. What's going to get me there. And, and going through that process was, um, was something that was very educational for me uh, and very life altering because it helped me, down the road when I wanted to start this business. It helped me to follow a different path that I probably would have followed. It helped me to uh, really look for work that was um, more beneficial for the family as opposed to just something that I like to do. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a big life altering experience. I'm not sure if that's the kind of uh, adversity you're looking for in the story, but there, there's, there's the first one for you. Well, that's a, that's a, really big one. I mean, you've got another baby on the way and you know, that's an, another mouth to feed. Uh, and yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, that's something my, my boyfriend and I right now, um, you know, we've got a baby on the way and there's so much of wanting to provide. And I know he's feeling that as well right now too. So yeah, I mean, I, I just really want to honor that you know, that you, you, you share that story with our audience, because I feel like, um, the, the, the men that listen to this show, uh, can really resonate with that and, and probably need to hear more of it, especially about the, the male ego part and accepting help and, you know, your friends that came through and helped you with that critical thinking. Yeah, I'll tell you my, so when I first lost my job, I would, I was of course really, really, really upset. My wife was calm. Um, she had just given birth, right? And she uh, said, well, look, here's what we'll do. We'll apply, you know, for some help with, uh, at the time we lived in a colder climate. So we'll apply for some help with uh, the fuel for the house. Uh, there was a government program. We'll apply for some help with this and that and other things. And I was like, no, we are not taking government help. We're not those kind of people. And I was like staunch on, no, we're not going to do that. And that is the male ego I'm talking about. I was 
you know, I was thinking, no, we're not, we're not moochers. We, you know, we earn everything. We don't do that. And um, my wife just went ahead and did it. And it was life-saving. It was literally life-saving because there were times where for the, for the six or eight months while we were struggling for, for me to get back on our feet. And of course you acquire debt during that and you got to pay it back off. There was times where there was just not enough money to accomplish anything in the week. And if it wasn't for her being super smart, super humble, and just going for that, we would have not been in any circumstance that would have equated to a good life. And then on the top of that, my, my friends all came together and they, they knew what happened and they said, okay, what's the most expensive thing for a brand new baby? Diapers. And they chipped in and literally we had six months worth of diapers. I mean, you know, it sounds so stupid when you say it, but it's the most, it was unbelievable. I could not tell you how much money that saved us something as simple as that. And I'm like, this is amazing. This was like, like two things that really just got taught me that lesson about that male ego that man, it's, it's even difficult to talk about it now, but, um, but I think it's an important lesson to realize that you gotta, you gotta get rid of that if you have a higher mission. And at that point, my higher mission was taking care of my family and we had to be able to do that. So yeah, huge lesson in that. Thank you for that share. Not a problem. And from a professional one, this one I mentioned during the speech. And, um, and I'm, I, I, know, I know I may have given other ones uh, as ideas, but I want, you can tell me if this, if this is good for the, for the audience, because this one really has been in my mind a lot lately. And I gave this during that risk-taking speech that you mentioned. And um, it's when you, you take a risk on bringing people into your team. So as a company owner, right, as a business owner, you bring people into your team and I don't know how everybody does it because I haven't worked for a ton of people, but I could tell you how I do it. When I bring someone in, they're a hundred percent and they become part of my family. They meet my, my wife, they meet my kids, they come to my house, they see the dog. I, you know, we don't, they're not just my employee that I talk to once in a while. Like they become part of my life. Some of my employees I've went to concerts with them. I went out to dinner with them. They've been at my house. I've cooked for them. So this is not a, a light relationship for me. I take it very seriously and I take employing someone and paying their salary very seriously. Um, and, and then to have the adversity of it not working out for one reason or another. And, and to me, the big adversity is when it doesn't work out, but somebody it's, you know, trying to be politically correct, but it's like, <laughs> you know, they just, they're, 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 they arrogant or they steal from you or they do something that is just really damaging to the company, but also to me personally. And that happened recently. And um, that, that was really difficult to deal with. I mean, it was really, really difficult. That, that kind of adversity for me, uh, being a risk taker. So sometimes I t when I talked about that in the speech, uh, I, being a risk taker means that I will see a gap and I'll fill it fast. Um, I, I don't, I don't waste time. I want to make sure that we can just move forward and accomplish the things we need to accomplish. And that's worked for me, let's say 90% of the time. Then the 10% it doesn't is maybe I'm, I, I made that wrong decision as a business owner and that wrong decision led to maybe the wrong person being in the wrong place in the company. And now we have this circumstance. And the reason that particular situation was so adverse is it wasn't just me. I started to see it affect the attitudes and emotions and, the feelings of the people on my team. And, and like I said, when I take someone on, it, this is a real deal for me. This is a serious matter. I mean, it's, I, I, don't, I don't take it lightly. Like, I, you know, if, if we have to part ways with people, 
it takes me sometimes like years to make that decision as terrible as that sounds. And that's a terrible thing to say as a boss, but as a CEO of a company, but it, it, I don't take that lightly. And in this particular situation, it was a really, really hard uh, emotional lesson for me. Uh, I spent days um, sleepless just thinking about what I could have done better. And then I got told this wonderful piece of knowledge that was the lesson for me in this adverse situation, which is I was using something called should statements. And I wasn't familiar with that. And that came to me through a, through a therapist um, that talked about something called should statements. And what, what they mean is, is I say, well, I, I hire you and I pay you a good salary and I give you great benefits and I give you a wonderful place to work that is that is free from discrimination and biases and things like that. So you should be loyal to me and you should work hard. And those should statements are terribly damaging to us as, as humans, not just as, as bosses, as humans, those are damaging statements because in essence it's saying, if we just look at it black and white on paper with no emotion, what should you do? Well, I'm paying you X salary for a job. I'm not paying you for your emotions. I'm not paying you for your loyalty. I'm not paying you for your friendship. So what you should do is accomplish your job for the salary I give you. But I tacked on all of these other things that you should do. You should be loyal. You should be um, a hard worker. You should work late. You should be friendly. You should be nice to my family. You should you know, not take these actions. All of these things that I added to that statement because I felt like I created a great work environment. And it was, um, it was a huge learning lesson for me in risk-taking because it, it taught me not all risks are great. Sometimes they fail. And then it taught me how to, how to fail at that um, effectively and then how to not only fail at that effectively but then not, not self-blame, which is one of the biggest parts because when you self-blame, uh, there's no forward movement. So I, I, hope, I hope both of those are useful. <laughs> oh, useful. Absolutely. And when you were saying that your therapist walked you through that should statement, it's almost as if you had certain expectations. And if people weren't meeting these values or expectations, there was this emotional consequence to it. One of my mentors in the past told me that I used to should all over myself. <laughs> and so it just reminded me of that and it made me laugh. And, you know, this is part of our brains and we do this to ourselves. And once we realize that it's happening, we can stop those projected expectations that we have for other people because nobody is going to love your business as much as you are. Nobody is going to want to be 100% and as gung-ho for your business as you are. So if you have those expectations, those unrealistic expectations that other people are going to have that same level of passion and hustle for something that you're creating, it's just not realistic. Yeah. No. And yeah. even, even from a family level, this is the thing I learned from my therapist too, is like saying something like, look, I've worked really hard. Um, we, de we definitely, again, uh, from the first story, accomplished the goal. I have a really wonderfully successful business. I run two, you know, two, I run two companies and a nonprofit. So I've accomplished that first goal of pre preparing for my family. So now another terribly should statement is say, look, I've, I've created a great home environment for my for my teenage daughter, I've given her everything that she can possibly want, so she should never disobey me. Right, and it's terrible, right? But we do it as parents. We say, but I've given you everything you can possibly want. Why would you go do this? And, and that's a should statement, right? It's a statement which basically says, but I did all these things, 
and you still acted like this unacceptable thing. And that is damaging because now I'm putting the onus basically on me for her actions. Like if maybe if I gave you a better home, maybe if I was more of a disciplinarian, maybe if I did X, Y, Z, whatever, that you would not have went out and, and done this bad thing. But that's all a should statement instead of looking at what are the motivators for someone's action? Mm-hmm. Right. So in the, in the case of the second story, analyzing what was the motivator? Why would a person who was growing in an industry, uh, was getting paid a great salary, had good benefits, was being given a ton of responsibility? Why would they decide to continue down a path of arrogance and then eventually end up you know, stealing something? Why would that happen? And, and instead of saying they should have, analyzing what's the motivator behind that? And then the same with the kids, you know, sit back and say, okay, yep, I gave all of these things, I gave a great home, all this. Now, why? Why would they go out and take this action? Why would they do this thing? Now, my daughter didn't do this, but why would she go out and get drunk with her friends one night? You know, she, had, she hasn't done that. But let's just use that as an example. And analyzing, instead of making it a should statement, what is it that was the motivator for that? Was it, was it curiosity? Was it uh, peer pressure? Uh, was it the desire to be accepted by her friends? What, what was it? And once we find that motivator, now there's a way that we can make an effective change. You know, and it doesn't mean there's no consequence to action. There's still consequence to action. You may still feel bad, but at the end of the day, finding the motivator is so much better than, than, than the should. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the, the should statement, the expectations, right? It's, it's always like the, I always have to remind myself because I, I, I catch myself in that trap as well, where I'm like, well, I, they should have done this because I did that. And then I stop myself and I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, am I doing this with an expectation in mind? Like, let's take into account this person's life and what they have going on and what their thought process is and, you know, all the different factors that are, that, are, that come into this. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I remember one time this happened many, many, many years ago. Uh, we had this, this, this uh, family that we would always invite over for, for dinner and, you know, a couple of years went by and we never got a return invite. And I started to really irritate me, you know, like, I can't understand, like, man, we're always inviting them over. They never invite us over. It just seems so unfair. And it was got to the point where the irritation made me say something one day. Now I did it as a joke, but everyone knew it wasn't, you know, cause it was one of those like passive aggressive <laughs> statements. And the person said, oh my gosh, I can never invite you over. You were a trained chef. I mean, if I invite you over, you would hate anything I cook for you. And it was like this giant light bulb. They weren't not inviting us over because they were hated our guts or they were moochers or they just always wanted free food. They were not inviting us over because they, they felt that I would be too disappointed in anything they cooked because they couldn't cook as good or whatever, right? And that is again, going back to, I was doing a should statement. You know, I invited them over 10 times. They should invite me over at least once. Finding the motivator for the bad action helped me to see that it was really fear of disappointment and, and embarrassment um, and not anything else beyond that. And that was, that was an, e- that's an easy thing to fix. Much easier to fix when you, when you do it that way, as opposed to the, the blame game. Yeah. I want to honor you too. And mention that you've said a few times that you have a therapist and that you've spoken to your therapist about many of these topics and decisions. And I wanted to honor that because 
I think a lot of our male listeners would resonate with that and female listeners. You know, it's okay to go talk to someone, whether it's a mentor, a coach, a therapist, and it's okay to talk to someone about your adversity. Because if you don't and you bottle it up inside, it might be a missed opportunity, especially with your first story when you mentioned, hey, these friends helped me out. They saved me all this money. They got me diapers for myself and my family. Putting that ego aside, like we mentioned earlier, and you know, I wanted to honor that because I think some people are adverse to therapy because they think it's touchy-feely or whatever, and I just wanted to honor that you're vocal um, to things that are vulnerable in your life, and you take that and you say, here's the information, here it is laid out logically, here are all the facts, what am I doing? What are the actions that I can change? Because I certainly can't change other people's actions, but I can change my own and I can dissect it. And that's where that social engineering part of it comes in, where you are this master dissector of data, including with yourself. And I think it's really honorable that you've been able to understand that and spin that into your personal life as well as your business life. So I just wanted to stop and honor that very briefly. Thank you. You know, I think um, therapy, and therapists are there for a, a, a massive purpose and you know it's I've had people come to me and say they tried it and they had a really bad experience and I'm like okay that was one person that you may not have resonated with so why not interview a bunch of therapists you know just like you would a, an employee you know like sit down and talk to them before all of them will give you 10 minutes or 15 minutes even on the phone and ask them about their philosophies, how they deal with tra people who have experienced trauma or how they deal with uh, people who have these kinds of life problems and lay out, you know, what, and say, I'm not looking for a therapy session. I'm just looking, what are your fundamental belief systems on this? And if someone's uh, therapist belief system is completely opposing to yours, then maybe that's not the right person for you. And when you find the right one, it can be so amazing as an experience to have a person that you can with no judgment, talk about everything that's in your, your head and your heart and, and get good, clear direction and, and suggestions, you know, like, I don't know how, you know, if you have a therapist, how they work, but mine, like she doesn't say, Hey, go do this. She helps me come to a conclusion uh, about the best path to take. That seems like it was always in my head, but I just didn't know it. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that every time that you're just like, <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. How do you do that? I want to know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, um, my fiance was completely adverse, right? He had gone to multiple different therapists and, you know, really was kind of trying to work through some trauma in his life. And he wasn't really resonating with, with the therapists that he was going to see. And we ended up finding, um, through Svetlana, thank you, Svetlana. Um, we found, um, Alison Armstrong, who's just been the best resource for us. And, and we both, you know, do monthly calls with her and we've bought her programs. She's a virtual therapist. Um, so it's a little bit different, but you know, Hey, do what you got to do for, for the coaching and for the therapy and for the mentorship, because even if they're not in your area, you can find people that will resonate with your style. And I think finding that style for him was totally worth it. Right. Whereas like, he wasn't getting what he needed before. So I appreciate you saying that as well. Not a problem. Um, so I want to kind of shift into really what got you passionate about your nonprofit, because I know that it's something where you've kind of worked with law enforcement and you've been, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, stopping child trafficking and, and some other really serious things that, that affect 
our lives and affect the the world really. And so I wanted to dive into what got you into that, and maybe you can correct some of my facts there. In this, no, your facts were were good. So I. In one of my uh, corporate jobs, we were doing um, a, a, an audit, a security audit, what they call a, a pen test, and we uh, get paid to basically um, hack into a computer network and then analyze maybe vulnerabilities that we could see from the inside. And in this one test, we found there was this one computer that uh, just was going on the dark web, so something called Tor. It's a type of VPN, a virtual private network that allows people to connect to the dark web from their computer. And once you're in there, you can't see anything, right? You, the, an outside person can't see what a person is doing on the dark web unless you're on that machine. And we weren't, but we saw the traffic. So we went to the owner of the, of the organization and we're like, hey, is there any reason why someone in this department would be on the dark web? And they said, no, not at all. And um, we suggested that because this person was using their work machines to be on there, that they install a keylogger, which is something that basically spies on the machine. Uh, especially since it was breaking corporate policy. It wasn't something they were supposed to be doing. And uh, we had an inkling that there was probably some really nefarious activity. Uh, sadly, um, what we found was this guy was basically taking business trips to the Philippines and he was molesting children and videotaping it and then trading those videotapes with other like-minded, horrible people on the dark web. And we um, worked with law enforcement in that company and he's now in prison. And that felt really good. You know, of course, horrible that what he did, but it felt really good that we, you know, I just was thinking to myself, I'm just like a little hacker here. I don't really do superhero stuff. And it felt good to be part of an event that stopped someone who was hurting kids. And the next two or three years, that happened a couple more times. And then eventually I said, you know, I wonder if there's other people in my industry that have had similar experiences that want to devote their talent. Because the thing is, the, this, the industry I'm in is, is a really, really great industry for a job. And they, people can make a really great living at, at what they do. So it's really rare for someone, not that it doesn't happen, but it's rare for someone to want to leave the information security industry to go be a government employee. So I said, I wonder how crazy it is to gather people together that have similar talent or more talent than me and want to volunteer and donate their time to helping law enforcement close some of these cases that they don't have the expertise in-house to do. So I talked to a couple friends. I created what's called the Innocent Lives Foundation. It's a, it's a 501c3, so it's a real nonprofit. Um, and then I um, talked about it at a hacker conference. The the response was unbelievably overwhelming. I thought, you know, there's going to be a couple people who are interested, maybe, you know, a couple dozen. We had 300 and some people that wanted to volunteer. Uh, right now, two years later, I got 20, 28 volunteers in the organization. I got three full-time employees. Uh, we're funded through private donations completely. We've um, handed in over 70 cases this year, which means that we've helped track 70 people who are hurting children and turned them into law enforcement. Um, and we do it uh, through an organization that supports its people through uh, wellness. So another thing about therapy, I'm a huge believer that if you dabble in this at all, you have to talk to someone. So the first thing I did before I hired my first person is I got a group of therapists that would work for us and they, they offer wellness, um, wellness program through the internet. Like you said, a virtual therapy session, but it's, we call it a wellness session uh, to each one of our volunteers and they have to see them once a month 
and talk about the things that are in their head and their lives and how everything they're doing for us is affecting them. And, um, and we, yeah, we're just, we're two, two, almost two and a half years now. We're just doing some amazing things and, and stopping people who both uh, create and trade child pornography and traffic children. Wow. <laughs> I'm taking all of that in. It is heroic work. You know, you mentioned like, you know, you felt kind of like a hero. I mean, anything that, you know, you can do to help unmask, you know, child predators is, is heroic work in itself. And, you know, I know that there's, there's a big need for it. And uh, Svetlana, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tony Robbins is really big on, um, on a lot of the, you know, helping fund child trafficking. So at every single event, he is always raising money. And I, and I believe he also had some sort of viral campaign with somebody else. And, and there's always somebody at the event that is raising money for um, child, predator, child predators and, I mean, not child predators, <laughs> but... Um, to stop them, yes. To stop child predators, yeah. I mean, that that topic is just... Whew, yeah, I mean, especially being pregnant now, it ruffles my feathers. Yeah. yeah well, if you know Tony Robbins, tell him we should talk. <laughs> you know, this is exactly the the type of type of people I feel like you know he would be he would be behind and get behind. But I, you know, just thank you for for that service. You know, I think that that is really truly a public service. I mean, apart from you know law enforcement and people that are doing the work like FBI or whatever, I don't think that they're focused solely on on this industry, unfortunately, because they've got so much going on. And so I, I just appreciate that you've dedicated your life to it and, and the outpour of, of people that, that came to you after you, you mentioned it, you know, you were saying, Hey, I, I thought maybe like one or two people, but you know, you, you, you kind of saw the results there that people want to help people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And it's all about growth, but it's also all about contribution and what you can give back. So I think that it's just, it's just really lovely. And just thank you for, for that service. Thank you. I know that that's a super, super deep topic. Uh, <laughs> and, and Certainly that, is. Yeah, yeah. But maybe let's switch to a lighter note to kind of brighten things up again um, <laughs> to bring, you know, I mean, obviously that brings smiles to people's faces, but let's, let's lighten up the mood. Maybe something silly. Tell us about some of your morning routines and your habits. You know, we've had other CEOs on before, and we're always just kind of curious as to what kind of either your morning routines are or your, your life habits or hacks are. So maybe let's go into that and kind of see if, if you have anything that you do on a daily to ensure that you're successful. Before I leave bed, I have to read something and, and then spend a few minutes meditating on it. Um, for, for me, that's an important, an important practice. And there's some mornings, like especially when I'm traveling, I'm in a different time zone and it messes me up. That doesn't happen and it throws my whole day off. Uh, for me, that that's you know, there's there's other other things that I do throughout the day that that are that are habit forming. But that to me is like one of the things. Starting the morning off, I I have to read something not industry related. That's my thing. It's not news. It's not Twitter. It's not Facebook. I have to get a book, something that I read, and it has to be not related to my job. And then just spend a few minutes thinking and pondering on it to kind of get my brain set for the day. I find that to be something I started. Oh, I'd say maybe a year and a half or so ago that's been really successful for me at, at making making a, the morning ritual so so much easier uh to to mm. deal with. What um 
what are some of the books that you've dove into recently or or maybe you could um recommend um any books for the listeners that that help you get into that state sure so okay so i have so the, the i brought up uh, amy cuddy's book um which is, is just that that's just an amazing book in my opinion um but i'll tell you one that i constantly go back to which is, it kind of fits into some of the things we spoke about here is uh, joe navarro's book it's what everybody is saying and it it's a fascinating read because it, it goes through body language tells but also talks about um stories and where he was able to use that tell as an fbi agent so it it's not just like an encyclopedia of information it actually goes through some actionable use cases uh, uh with it um and then uh robin dreek has uh he has a, he has a couple books and a third one coming but i gotta say his very first book uh the top 10 techniques to build rapport with anyone fast it's self-published it's on amazon it's a really small book like maybe 110 pages or less and I find that book to be immediately actionable. You know, like, like you can read a paragraph in that, get up and try something. And you're like, oh, I got, I got this. I, I can go do this. Um, I, I know that's three. You asked for one. But those, those, cause those books, those ones I constantly seem to go back to um, all the time. And then and there's another one um, uh, that I would, I would definitely recommend, which is uh, on becoming an artist, uh, Ellen Langer. She's a, a researcher. Uh, that talks a lot about critical thinking, talks a lot about uh, influencing our own thought process. And, uh, and in that book, she really goes through some amazing, amazing things on perception and critical thinking that I think is it makes that a really, really great read for people. Well, thank you. And I will link all of those in the show notes so that our listeners can easily access uh, all of those books. I was going to suggest too, when you were talking about waking up and reading, one thing that really helps me, and it's actually something I do before bed, but I kind of have a similar practice. I'll read something and then ponder on it. But the Daily Stoic book, um, it's Ryan Holiday's version, has been really, really helpful. So it might be something that you you might like. But also, I wanted to to recommend um, a book that I'm reading right now called Never Split the Difference. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a great one from Chris Voss. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you read it already. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I had Chris on my podcast because he is just amazing. Did you really? Wow. Oh, you know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because, and it, you were, when you were talking about, you know, the hacking and everything, it reminded me of it because the way that he's able to, to create conversations with, uh, you know, people that he's not necessarily trying to manipulate, but, but yeah, trying to manipulate people that have either uh, taken hostages or trying to rob banks, you know, p- people like that. And, I'm reading it in terms of like, Hey, how can I put this, bring this back into a workplace? How can I bring this back into my leadership and how I'm communicating? But everything that you were saying kind of reminded me of that. How, how was that conversation with him? Oh man. So he, first of all, he's just, he's as fascinating as his book is right. Uh, even more so in person, because you, you got, you got the, you got the personality and the, that dynamicness of who he is. And it's easy, really easy to quickly tell that, yeah, he is a master at his craft. Like it is not just somebody who wrote a book. He is a master at his craft. He is, he is great. He really is. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation uh, with him. And we even said, man, we got to do this again. Cause he, he really, there's, there's so many similarities between uh, negotiation skills and social engineering skills. They're like one and almost one in the same. Um, it was, yeah. it was like, yeah, match. It was a match conversation. It was wonderful. 
Yeah, it, and it's so funny because it reminded, when you were talking earlier, it reminded me, and I'm like, is this serendipitous right now that I'm <laughs> reading this book and now we're having this conversation with so many similarities? Um, so that's super funny that you actually had him on your podcast. I will um, link that episode in the show notes if it's out there in the world. Um, it is, I, yeah. Awesome. I'll try, to, I'll try to link that in the show notes. And, and yeah, and just so our listeners know, uh, Chris has a podcast as well. So um, we're lucky that he came on ours, but he also has a podcast. So I'll link that in the show notes for everyone. Re- really great recommendations on books. So amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I've ju- I've just been soaking all of this in and listening and and learning as as we've been just going through this episode today. When are you due? <laughs> November twenty fifth. <laughs> oh my, that's coming up so fast. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm kind of in this uh, stage right now where I I even wasn't sure if today was wh- well when we scheduled this <laughs> when we scheduled this I was I was telling Jess I'm like oh that's a Monday I kept telling her it's Monday like our, our interview is Monday <laughs> no you get a free pass at everything when my <laughs> my wife worked up until like the week before two, like a week or two before she gave birth and I was like you're nuts yeah everybody's been telling it. me to start taking it easy because I have oh I have a bunch of clients tomorrow and I have um my last I'm I'm done after this I promise <laughs> I was like I have my last client next week but she might come earlier there they're talking about inducing me, which I really don't want to do um, because they, they keep saying that they don't really have any evidence. Um, they're just worried about complications because they keep saying mm. that I'm measuring a little bigger. Um, but I mean, what does that even mean? Right. So I'm like, you know, it's me, you know, we, we went, my wife and I went to a Lamaze class and uh, my wife is really small and, and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm six, three. So that at this class, this, this wonderful Lamaze instructor said that in olden times, they had this thing that if the man can hold the woman, that if the, if a doctor ever tells you, Hey, you know, you you got another few hours and you want to rush it along, um, have your, your guy support you. You know, you put your arms around his neck facing each other. He has to hold all your weight and lower back during two or three contractions. And, oh, wow. and sometimes it works to move the baby into position. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we, we listened to that. And then my wife was, was giving, you know, in, in labor and the doc came in and said, Oh, you probably have another six or seven hours. And Arisa was like, no, no, we're right. As soon as the doc left, it was like, no, that that's not happening. And we did that thing. I swear two contractions. And she says, I'm about to give birth. And I ran out and got the doctor. The doctor's like, come on. I told you six hours. I'm like, no, you really got to come check. And she came in and it was like, call the nurses. <laughs> like, yeah, she's giving exactly. birth right now. I've, it's I've unbelievable. Really, you it's, know, it's crazy. Yeah. I've really had to learn to, cause I'm adjusting into, I'm, I'm, I'm a mother already and I'm adjusting into parenthood. And I've, I was talking to a friend yesterday and I'm like, you know, I'm starting to experience the bombardment of opinions of professional opinions and what everybody has to, all of a sudden I'm measuring, you know, they're telling me I'm measuring a little bigger, but they're like, could be the way you're caring. Cause I'm literally all in my belly. I've not gained weight anywhere else. It's all my belly. So I'm kind of pointing out and um, their, their paranoia is that is the shoulder dystocia and, um, C-section <laughs> and, oh. and I'm just like, this is so fear inducing. I'm like, how is this helping me as yeah. a, you know, as a parent? I'm like, why, what is the purpose? Yeah. And scheduling, 
you know, they scheduled another ultrasound and yesterday I finally was like, I, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing another ultrasound. I put my foot down. I'm like, I don't want to do this. Um, it's unnecessary. It's not going to change anything. And, uh, I would just like to be calm and relaxed and it's the best thing you can do. Right. Exactly. I'm like, this is going to go exactly the way that it's meant to go and everything's going to be fine. You know? So it's just like a bunch of, I think my brain is like frazzled in like 50 different places right now. Well, I mean, you, you're, you're taking care of another human inside. So I think, I think you have a free pass, you know? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, Chris, for coming on. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on or anything that you've got coming up that you would want us to kind of like plug for you at all? You know, I'd love to talk, uh, just mention about our, our human hacking conference, February uh, 2021 and 22 here in Orlando, Florida. Um, so what I did is after the last few years that we talked about of having these amazing experiences and realizing how, how many people are using these skills that are not in my field, I decided to gather some of the world's like greatest minds, you know, like Joe Navarro, the guy who wrote the book, what everybody is saying, Robin Dreek, uh, Ian Rowland, R. Paul Wilson, Dov Barron, Stephanie Pauls, there's so many other names uh, to come in and do workshops on things like um, cold reading, um, um, you know, nonverbal cues, uh, leadership skills, building rapport, and not just speeches, but like two to four hour workshops on how you can use these skills in your life. So that conference is kicking off in February here in Orlando, and it is not geared just towards cybersecurity. It is really geared towards anybody who wants to make a change in their life, get some advancement, and learn how to recognize uh, good and bad actions and qualities and it's just I, I'm, I'm so excited about it I think it's really gonna it's gonna explode into something really awesome absolutely um, we will definitely um, link that in the show notes is is there a link on your website that gives information about that or there is uh, and they can go to sevillage.org so awesome. s is uh, social engineer village so sevillage.org and everything is there Amazing. And, and you, I have to give a shout out. You mentioned all the amazing people that would be involved in that. And you mentioned Stephanie Paul and, and she is the one who got you and I connected together. So I just wanted to, to shout out Stephanie. She's been on our podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, you would definitely enjoy Stephanie's as well. So go check her episode out. But yeah, thank you, Stephanie. I'm sure you're listening. Uh, She's uh, amazing. For connecting us. She is, she's yeah. quite remarkable so I, I love that you're doing uh doing this event as well and and, it, and including her because she is she's fascinating so um so i think it would be really cool and so if anyone's interested in that event i'll, I'll link i'll link that sevillage.org in the show notes so you can easily click on that um anything else that you have coming up chris or that you would want people to know about um about you or your organizations or anything we can we can help uh, send people to. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they can come to our websites and check out any public events we have. The social-engineer.com site um, is, is our corporate site. And then social-engineer.org is our free site that has the podcast and the newsletter and a whole bunch of uh, informational educational resources that people can utilize. So that's just that. And But the big the big one is the February conference. I'm really, really excited about that. Amazing. And where are you most active? Can people connect with you on LinkedIn or, uh, or any social media platforms? LinkedIn and Twitter seem to be the, the ones that, that I personally use the most. Now, our company is all over all of them. But um, for me, LinkedIn is something I'm, it's, it's always with me. And it seems to be like better than business cards lately. And uh, 
and Twitter is more of a fun one. I just, I don't really do anything serious on that, but I, we tweet a bunch of stuff, but um, yeah, the LinkedIn seems to be a huge business connecting tool lately. Awesome. And LinkedIn is, is your full name, right? It is. Yeah. Awesome. And what is your Twitter handle? So I can link that for everyone. Human hacker. If you can believe that. <laughs> Very <laughs> fitting. <laughs> Very fitting. Um, well, I appreciate all of your time. You know, me personally coming from the tech space and the tech world in my profession, it's been just really a joy to, to hear from somebody with that engineering mindset. And, and I really think that this episode is going to resonate with some of the folks that have more of that tech background and who knows, you might have people reaching out to your nonprofit to, to help out. So thank you so much for, for being on and, and sharing your, your vulnerability with us and your stories and, and um, yeah, just getting real with us. We appreciate it so much. No problem. Thank you for uh, having a podcast you. like this. It's uh, it's much needed to have honest, open conversations. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Bold and Vulnerable podcast. For more information on today's speaker, please visit us at boldandvulnerablepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Let's keep spreading the love by being bold and vulnerable. Thank you. We love you.